Thank you, John. Great. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, this morning, it's, it's funny you mentioned John Farron. This morning, I, I lay the blame of what I'm about to share with you squarely at John Farron's feet, which is uh, convenient because he's not here to defend himself. Um, but, but John, in his last talk to us, um, was speaking on, on this series. Thank you. Yeah, you, you, can, you can try it off. Thank you. I feel a bit useless here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, John, when he last spoke to us, uh, said something that really caught my attention. And uh, a lot of it caught my attention, I should say, probably. But uh, there was a particular bit that he said, and I've, I've even gone back and recorded it and written it down. So I quote, Jesus didn't want followers. He wanted disciples. And you know the difference between a follower and a disciple. A follower is a follower. It doesn't need explanation. A disciple is someone who lives under the discipline and control of Jesus. And as I listened to John say that, I realized that there was a question that that was forming in my mind, and it's really this question that is the basis of what I want to share with you this morning. And the question is this, what does it look like to live life as a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it look like to live life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I was uh, overhearing my wife recently uh, listen to a, a podcast uh, on a, a Christian mom's podcast that she listens to. Uh, and I've written down another quote because this, this lady that she, she was listening to said something really profound, not just, not just for me and, and Emily as parents, but also I think for us this morning. And, and this is what she said. I have taken the stance that I am raising adults. I am not raising kids, and that means that my kids are going to mess up sometimes, are going to do things that embarrass me, and I'm totally fine with it because I'm committed to loving this season and helping them turn to the best adults they can be. It's amazing, isn't it? Raising adults, not raising kids. I think that's a great great focus. Jesus is in the business of growth and maturing people. The miracle of being a Christian, isn't, isn't it? It's the miracle of being a Christian that as we follow Jesus, we change, we mature, we grow. It's a miracle that, that I am not the same person today that I was 15 years ago. And God willing, I'm not going to be the same person in 15 years' time that I am today. It's a miracle that Jesus can take 12 ordinary guys, uh, fishermen, tax collectors, um, people who messed up, people who sinned, people who got things wrong, and make them his followers. And those followers become Jesus' 12 disciples. And 11 of those disciples, if you read on through the, uh, through the Gospels and read on through to Acts, 11 of those, those disciples go on to become apostles and are instrumental in the starting of the church. And so when we think about where these 12 men have, have come from and when Jesus gets hold of their lives, what, what he does in their lives, it's inspiring to see Jesus come to this point in Matthew chapter 10 where he's preparing to send them out, giving them instructions to go out and to preach the good news and to heal the sick and to cast out demons and to raise the dead. It's inspiring to see that. And I want to invite you to be inspired and, and challenged with me on, on, on the instructions and the passages that, that, that Jesus uh, goes through. And so I've written down some thoughts of what does it look like to live life as a disciple of Jesus. And firstly, disciples are trusted. Disciples are trusted. 
Uh, my daughter Ellie recently celebrated her first, first birthday, uh, and uh, about four months prior to that, she, she went to that really exciting stage of being able to be able to crawl. Any, any of you who are parents, you, you, you go through this stage of having irrational fears that my child will never walk. They will, they will never be able to walk around, and then all of a sudden it, it comes. But she got to that exciting stage of being able to crawl. Uh, now, the thing you need to know about my daughter is that she most definitely has a favorite parent. And I'll give you a clue, it's not me. Okay? And she... She, when she learned to crawl, she would follow Emily around everywhere she went. So Emily would move from one room to the next, and you'd hear this. And you'd see Ellie out there looking gazingly into her mother's eyes and following her around everywhere. Now, this was cute for about five minutes, and then it just got annoying, okay? So she'd follow around everywhere. And if, if by chance she couldn't find her mother, she'd sit up and she'd just start crying. Uh, I wasn't able to console her. Um, that, that we've developed, we've developed, we've moved forward, which is good, but, but that's how it was originally. Jesus' desire for us to be disciples is so that he can send us out. We were commissioned to be sent out into all the places of this earth to represent Jesus. A follower can't be sent out because, in, by definition, a follower needs someone to follow. But a disciple is more than just a follower. A disciple is someone who not only follows, but but serves and, and represents their master. So what does it look like to be trusted by Jesus then? Let me tell you another story, a, a story in the Bible. This can be found in Genesis. And if you're really interested, Genesis through, uh, 25 through to, through to 35 is the story of Jacob. It's the story of his life. Um, but this particular story is about Jacob and his brother Esau. And I won't, I won't tell you the whole story. It's a big, a big story and I recommend you go and, go and read it. But we pick up the story where Jacob has gone away and he's, he's lived with his uncle Laban for 20 years and he's run away to his uncle's house because essentially he really cheesed off his brother um, through a number of incidents uh, and his brother wanted to kill him. Hello, Ellie. Yeah. Um, he, he wanted to kill him. Uh, and so he ran away uh, to his brother's house, spent 20 years there, and God blessed his life while he was, while he was with his, his uncle and working for his uncle. And he, he grew, he had uh, a, a number of wives, not necessarily recommended, but a number of wives. Um, he, had, he got a number of children, so he had a big family. He uh, acquired wealth in the, in, the, in the way of flocks and herds and, and, and uh, servants. So he was a really wealthy guy. And then God approaches him and says, I want you to go back to your father's household and I will bless you and protect you as you go back. So we pick up the story where Jacob is traveling back to, back to the land of his father and he, he recognizes that he's coming close to where his brother Esau lives and he's nervous about this because the last time his brother saw him he wanted to kill him. So he sends a messenger ahead of him and he says, go and tell my brother that I'm coming um, and see what sort of state of mind he's in uh, when you tell him that news. The messenger comes back a short time later and tells him, I told your brother that you're coming, and he's coming with 400 men. So, so all of a sudden, the worst runs through Jacob's mind. He thinks, oh, I'm, I'm going to lose everything. He's going to kill everyone. He's going to kill my family and my children. This isn't good. So he comes up with this plan to pacify his brother. And what he decides to do is he decides, I'm going to send my brother some gifts, I'm going to send him some really extravagant gifts. I'm going to give up some of my wealth in order to bless him. And maybe by the time he gets to me and he's seen these gifts, he won't want to kill me. 
So what he does is he takes a number of his herd, a number of his flocks, a number of his cattle, a number of his camels, and he sets them into groups, and he, he assigns a servant to go with each of these groups of, of, of gifts. Now, this was a big gift. It wasn't like a credit card or a lump of money that you could put in a bag. This was herds of cattle. So, so it's a big gift. And what he does is he sends these, these servants out of his sight towards where his brother's coming from, the direction his brother's coming from. He says, go ahead of me. And when you see my brother, tell him these are Jacob's flocks or Jacob's herds, and he's giving them to you as a gift. And he said that to the first and the second and the third servant, and off they went. And what struck me about was, that was that, that Jacob trusted his servants so much that he would give them an immense amount of wealth to carry with them and go out of his sight and take to his brother Esau. And Jesus, just like Jacob, gives us great wealth to carry out in front of him. Jesus gives his disciples good news about the kingdom of God. We're carriers of his message. We're the ones that get the privilege of being trusted by Jesus to carry his message to all the corners of the earth. Isn't that incredible that Jesus puts his trust in us? Worrying slightly, but but incredible as well that Jesus would trust us. Surely our desire as good disciples needs to be that when we get to the end of our journey, when we get to the end of our mission that Jesus gives us in life, that he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You, you were faithful in taking my trust and taking my good news to people. Well done, good and faithful servant. And just as a bit of an aside, as I was thinking about the fact that Jesus puts his trust in us, I thought, but what about when that trust gets broken? What happens when we fail or we misuse or abuse that trust that Jesus has placed in us? It surely happened to the disciples through the story of the gospel. And it happens to us as well. You know, if we apply our own standard and the world's standard to, to, to replacing trust, it looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? I mean, I think about examples, you know, he was drunk once, he can't possibly be trusted with alcohol again. Or she was in debt once, she, she can't be trusted to manage her own finances. He used to be an addict to, to porn or drugs or whatever, he, he can't be trusted to, 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 to be trusted with the internet or trusted to, to go to a pharmacy. She used to be mentally unstable or unwell, she can't be trusted on her own or around other groups other groups of people. In fact, we find it much easier to withdraw trust from people and hold it back than we do to give it. But what does Jesus do when we fail? What, what does Jesus do with his trust? Does he say, ah, you messed up. You're no longer worthy to carry my gospel to people. You're no longer worthy to be, to be used by me. I can't trust you anymore. No, Jesus, when we repent and when we come back to him, Jesus picks us up, dusts us off, and restores his trust in us to send us back out so that we can take his message once again. That's the miracle of being a disciple. If you're, if you're here today and you're believing that you're disqualified from being used by Jesus, used by God, because you failed, you fell short, you let him down, it's a lie. You come back to Jesus and he restores his trust in you as a disciple so that you can go out again and be effective again for him. So disciples are trusted, but disciples also stand out. Disciples stand out. I think you can be forgiven looking at Matthew 10, which uh, Rachel read to us. Uh, you can be forgiven for looking at it and thinking it's a really bad pep talk by Jesus. 
I mean, can you imagine it? Jesus comes to his 12 disciples, he gathers them around and he says to them, right guys, I'm giving you authority to to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons. I want you to go and and take this message to to the lost people of Israel. Uh, and you're going to do all this amazing stuff. And just as they're getting excited and thinking, wow, this is going to be incredible. We're going we're gonna to do the stuff that we've just seen Jesus doing. Just as they're getting excited. He says, oh, and by the way, don't take any money or resources with you. Uh, you're going to be like sheep among wolves. You're going to be handed over to local councils and be flogged. Because of me, you're going to be brought before governors and kings in court. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. You will be called devils and demons. And oh, and don't worry uh, about who can kill you physically because you'd be more concerned with what God can do throwing uh, soul and body into hell. Uh, right then, off you go. It's, it's pretty daunting stuff, isn't it? It's pretty, a pretty daunting passage. It brings home, for me at least, and hopefully for you, the, 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 the cost for those 12 men who were being sent out as Jesus' disciples. It meant real persecution, it meant real cost, especially in that day and age and that culture. You know, there's a Japanese saying, uh, it says, the nail that sticks out gets hammered. Uh, this world, this world does not like different. This, this world, like systems and conformity, and so in a world that does not like different, it, it can be really tempting, can't it, to hide our faith. It can be really tempting to just hide it away. A couple of common ways that we, we hide our faith. One is, I'm going to make being a disciple look really, really good and really, really attractive. And I'm not going to show any problems that I ever have. I'm always going to walk around with a smile on my face and Jesus loves me. Nothing can, nothing can make me feel uh, bad or hard done to. I'm going, to. I'm going to really sell Jesus. And I'm not going to tell people that there's any hardships. I'm going to tell them all the good bits about being a Christian and negate to tell them all the, all the challenges and difficulties of being a Christian. That's one way. Another way maybe is that I'm going to be apologetic about my faith. I'm going to, I'm just going to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, challenge you too much on, on what you believe. What you believe is fine. I, I'm sorry if I've offended you or, or challenged you in any way. And we apologize for our faith and we can be on the, the defensive straight away. We respond in ways like that because we want to hide. We want to blend in. We want to feel safe. But Jesus was countercultural. To be Jesus' disciple, we're, we're called to stand out in our generations. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, which we've already passed, Jesus puts it like this. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We can choose to hide under a bowl. We can choose to blend in. We can get pretty good at it in our lifetime. Or we can choose to do what Jesus commands us to do. He commands us to let our light shine out. When you light a torch in the dark, it doesn't just creep out and, and try and push away the darkness. The darkness has no power over it. It shines out. It brings attention to itself to say, look at what Jesus has done. You're called to be countercultural. Disciples are called to stand out. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So be different to the culture and the world around you. 
Stand out so that people see a difference. Stand out both individually and we need to stand out corporately as well as a church. And just a final point in that, I'm, I'm all for excellence. I'm all for doing things really, really well. I'm all for doing services really well. I'm all for doing home groups really well. I'm all for doing discipleship and evangelism really, really well to the, to the best quality that we can do it. But let's never, ever compromise on being different in order to get excellence. We're always called to be different and stand out so that the world stops, looks, and asks the question, why? Why are they different? Finally, disciples need a vision. It would be easy to wonder based on the cost of Jesus' outlines in his passage, who is actually capable of being a disciple at all? Is it just a calling for the hardcore or the adrenaline junkies or the insane or, or the superhuman, uh, the superhumanly brave? You know, who can possibly stand up to the cost that Jesus has just outlined in his passage? But no, it's not for them. So what is it that drives us as a disciple? What is it that keeps us going when, when we meet resistance or persecution or when uh, hard hearts or broken people cause damage to us or the people we love or, or when injustice rises up in, in this world? What keeps us going as Jesus' disciples? I, um, some years ago, a few years ago now, I did a, a running challenge, some of you might remember. I did, ran 23 5K runs in, so, in as many weekends as raising money for uh, World Vision. And... Uh, the story really is that I got to the end of that challenge and achieved what I wanted to achieve, and then I stopped running. And I, I thought, it's all right, I've done 23 runs now, I'm going to have a bit of a break and sit down and relax. But the truth is, I never really started again. I've run a few times since then, but I never really started again. Why? I lost my vision for it. I'd lost the thing that drive, drove me to, to, to do that, to go through the, the pain of training or, 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 or running. I lost what was driving me to do it. Disciples need a vision. We need to know that when things get tough, we have a reason for doing what we are doing. Paul knew the importance of having a vision. This is what he wrote. He said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. We need a vision that motivates us and inspires us to action and living life differently to the norm. So where do we get our vision from? As disciples, we get our vision from the one under whom we are gaining our discipline, and that's Jesus. Jesus gave this mission. As you go proclaim the message, the, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The mission Jesus gave to the 12 disciples and we've all got to ask ourselves the question this morning, or I challenge you to ask this question this morning. Jesus, give me the vision for being your disciple. What is your vision for my life for being your disciple? Where would you have me go? How would you call me to live differently, to stand out in the places that I go in this world? 
This morning I want to leave you with a short video. I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with this video, then hand back over to John. Um, it's a video I saw a, a few months ago online, and when I saw it, I was inspired by it and challenged by it about a vision for, for being a disciple of Jesus in this life. And I, I, I lay down that challenge to you this morning as you watch this video. I, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would challenge you on, on this video and on the way that we live our lives. And I know there's going to be an opportunity, a really simple opportunity uh, afterwards, after the video is finished, to, to stand and to, to claim that for yourselves and f- to be prayed over for that vision. But I pray that it would be inspiring and challenging to you as you watch it, as, it's, as it was to me. Amen.